0: We are starting a new series which won't take long, but will take us straight through a book called First John. If you have your Bible with you, please find 1 John. If you need a Bible, there should be one around you. And 1 John is very nearly at the end of your Bible. If you come to the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. Go back to the left just a few pages, and you will find a little cluster of letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we are going to have a short series on this very important letter written some 2,000 years ago. I won't have to do this every Sunday. But this Sunday, I want to orient you historically to what we are reading and explain to you the context in which John the Apostle started Writing. What are we reading? We're reading 1 John, the first of three letters or epistles, as your Bible may say, that John the Apostle, one of the eyewitness followers of Jesus, wrote in his old age. John, and this is very important and it's going to be abundantly clear to you because of John's repetitive almost circular, lyrical writing style. He writes in a way that very few people do because he wants to drive a point home, and that point is simply this, that John was there. John was an ordinary man in the first century growing up around the shores of Galilee and had been made a partner in the family business. John either was a rabbinical school washout or a never-was-rabbinical hopeful He was a commercial fisherman, he was a blue-collar worker helping feed the rest of ancient Israel some 2,000 years ago, but he and his brother met Jesus, and on one pivotal day, Jesus, walking along the shore, called out to John, and John made a decision that changed his life and all of human history. John began to follow Jesus. He dropped the nets And he didn't abandon his family, but he forever changed his relationship with his family by taking Jesus up on his call. And John became a disciple and later an apostle, a specifically chosen person that Jesus sent out to tell other people about him. And John was there as an eyewitness and someone who was up close to Jesus, so close to him that he ate with him. And he saw the wounds that killed him. And he watched him cry at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he watched an exhausted Jesus of Nazareth sit beside the well where he would later encounter alone the Samaritan woman and give a despised woman who had given up all hope in her own society and culture that anyone could ever love her, much less the very Son of God that's what we're reading. We're reading the first letter that John wrote. When was this letter written? Well, this letter was written a long time ago, but it's actually one of the last things written in your New Testament. It was written probably 85 to 95 AD. And if you're keeping if you're keeping track and you want to do the math and I know you're in church and you were told that no you were promised that no math would be necessary, but Do a little bit of math with me. That means that this letter was likely written some 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. John is the rare apostle who apparently is going to die of old age and perhaps natural causes. He suffered terribly according to church history for his faith in Christ, but unlike the other apostles, John at least was not murdered. He made it to old age. And 50-some years after the resurrection of Jesus, a whole new generation of Christians have risen up after John who did not know Jesus personally in the flesh the way John did. He writes then, and I'm going to explain that to you, specifically to counter a religious movement that has specifically risen up against the claims of Jesus. Where was it written? It was probably written from the ancient city of Ephesus. Paul started a church there. Paul's preaching started a church in Ephesus. You have a letter written to them by the Apostle Paul. In your New Testament, it's known as the letter to the Ephesians. And if there were a short list of important churches in the first century, Ephesus might be at the very top of that list. They were an important, influential, prosperous, knowledgeable church. At one time, they had real love for Jesus. And this was an unlikely place because Ephesus, even then, was legendary for its immorality and for its world-famous idolatry. Let me show you where we're talking about There, of course, is every schoolboy's favorite country when it comes to geography because it's one that's easily identified. That's Italy, Europe to the west, Greece, and this is modern-day Turkey, and right there is the city of Ephesus. All of the letters written to the churches in that open the chapters of Revelation, including the church of Ephesus that receives the first letter, all of those churches are in this region right here with Israel across the Mediterranean. Why am I showing you this? Not to be not to drag you into a Bible college classroom but to emphasize something that is vitally important and it's always worth your time to look in the maps at the back of your Bible that nobody pays any attention to and do a little bit of reading if you have a study Bible and if you don't I'm happy to recommend one just send me an email. We're reading literature that was written by an actual person to actual people with questions, problems, challenges, and things that were going against their early Christian faith. This is historical. It's not speculative. It's not imaginative. It actually happened. Why did John write all this? John wrote this. Though this is not our mail, this was not written to us, but it was written for us. We're not the first readers, so we have to understand what the first readers might have understood before we step and make it part of our own lives. But the point to anyone who ever reads the first letter of John is to assure us, the readers, that the life of Jesus was a real world fact. And on that foundational truth that Jesus really was alive, that Jesus really was crucified, that Jesus actually did rise again, John then wants to turn to the reader and explain to us how we can tell if we actually know him. John wants to give you certainty, in other words. When you doubt your Christian faith, John wants you to know how to evaluate it, and he also, if you're really following Jesus, he wants to reassure you. John wants to give you what Western society in 2024 tells us is absolutely impossible. John wants to give you spiritual certainty. Here's how he explained it at the very end of his letter. Like all good communicators, as John builds to the end of his letter, he wants to be crystal clear on the reason for his writing. This is characteristic of John's style. Toward the end of this letter, as well as the Gospel of John, he says, listen, if you've missed my point here's why I'm writing. Of all the things I could have told you, I've told you the things that have just preceded, and here is why. 1 John 5.13. Read this verse with me, please. John says toward the end of 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a vitally important sentence, and if you want to memorize and do yourself and others some good and memorize a Bible verse, take this one home and read it until you own it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what's the next word? That you may know that you have eternal life. You can know, according to John, if you believe in Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. The entire point of John's first letter is that your faith in Christ is a know-so faith, not a hope-so faith. That God has loved you enough not to leave you wondering and worrying whether any of this is real. Have you ever asked yourself that, by the way? You ever ask yourself in prayer whether this actually matters or you're just speaking words into an empty room? Your words aren't going any higher than the ceiling? That kind, of doubt, that kind of doubt is common in Christian life. That's why John says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. Not imagine, not hope so, not work for, no. Know that you have eternal life. By the way, if ever you can turn and you should ask for opportunities from God and take them when they're provided, if you can ever turn an opportunity to the gospel, this verse is a great way to do it. If there is any opportunity to speak of heaven and eternal life, you can ask someone this. That's really interesting. By the way, do you know that you have eternal life or are you still working on it? If you ask the second part of the question that way, do you know, are you sure, or are you still working on it? Almost everyone in America will tell you, yeah, I'm working on it. So, oh, really, what, what kind of things are you working on? Well, I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to read some books. I'm meditating. I'm Increasingly, people are meditating and doing acid, having altered experience, spiritual experiences. You may laugh, but that's absolutely real. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in our hearts, and the human heart wants to live. No one desires death. If they ever tire of life, it's only because life has become so unpleasant. Everybody wants to truly enjoy life. God is life, and God gives life, as I'm about to show you. And God has placed in every human heart the desire to live forever, to have what the Bible calls eternal life. So when you ask somebody, do you know that you have that, or are you still working on it? You may be surprised what they tell you. And then you say, We're polite and respectful all the way through. You know, I was reading in my Bible. If you want, you can say, my pastor told us on Sunday that there's a verse in the Bible that tells us we can know that we have eternal life. Could I share that with you? And many times people say, yeah, sure, I got a minute. Sometimes people say, I don't want to hear another word. That's fine. God knows that person, God loves that person, God will seek that person in God's own time, you can start a conversation based on what no one but Jesus can give people, which is the certainty, the certain personal knowledge that you already have eternal life. If you don't have that this morning, I want to invite you this morning to be certain before you leave this room that you have reached out to Jesus and trusted Him with your life and that He has given you eternal life. If you're here in this church working on it, if this is part of your effort, here's the announcement. Only Jesus can save you. This church can only do this for you. We can tell you all about Jesus. We can point to him and tell you that he can give you eternal life, but he alone can do that. I can't do that. No congregation can do that. No moral self-improvement program. No 12-step program. No book. No wisdom. Only Jesus can give you life. And John says the point of his eyewitness writing and testimony is so that you would know that you have it. In context of history, John is also specifically countering an early spiritual movement that rose against Christianity called Gnosticism. Fancy word with a strange spelling. Why is that? Let me explain. What did the Gnostics believe? Well, the Gnostics rose around this time Decades after the testimony of Jesus had been witnessed all across the Roman Empire. In other words, their specific counter, their specific denial of Jesus had texture and details because the testimony of the apostles had been so clear. What did the Gnostics teach? Well, number one, they taught that they had secret knowledge. That's why the word is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is spelled in that weird way for the same reason our English word is spelled knowledge with a K on the beginning of it. Why is that? Because that's a Greek word that simply means knowledge, and the Gnostics specifically believed that they were in a secret super society, that they had a spiritual decoder ring which made them superior to other people even to the point of sinlessness. The Gnostics were into knowledge. What that means is in their spiritual journeys, they elevated the life of the mind and speculative, imaginative, what-if thinking to the point where behavior did not really matter. It's the mind, it's the spirit that we're after. These bodies do not specifically matter. Number two, a second core belief of the Gnostics is this, that creation, matter, this world, including our bodies, was the work of an evil power, and only the spiritual is pure. Gnostic teaching could be summed up on this level by saying this, your body is bad, but your soul is good your body's going to betray you, your body has dark urges, your body is corrupt and unredeemable, but your soul is good. Consequently, what that means specifically is the Gnostics said Jesus could not possibly have been born as a human being because matter is corrupt, because the body is fallen. Now, they had various explanations uh, for the way Jesus acted as the way He did, that He only appeared to have a body, but He really was a true spirit, same as them, that the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Christ Jesus for a time and endowed him with things that no ordinary human being could do. But when Jesus is on the cross, the Spirit abandons him, and that's why Jesus cries out on the cross. You think, okay, came to church, not a college course. What difference does any of this make to me? Listen, Once you understand the ancient Gnostic belief that only the spiritual matters and the body is corrupt or insignificant, you're going to discover that these ancient ideas permeate our culture. A common belief in our present day is this. What we do with our bodies does not really matter as long as our heart is good. You ever heard that? Why did you do these terrible things? Listen, my heart was in the right place. I meant well. It's just my body. It's no one else's. What I do with the body doesn't matter so long as my mind, so long as my heart, so long as my soul is in a different place. Gnostic ideas run all the way through Western culture, and here's another expression of it, and you'll find this in a lot of spiritual thinking, east and west. The Gnostics said, our bodies are corrupted, our spirits, there's a barrier between the body and the spirit. The spirit is and can only be pure. The body is and can only be corrupt. So one group said, the body is corrupt, so we need to beat it down. We need to be tough on our bodies. We need to be physically disciplined and keep our bodies in check. The other school said, no, no, that's unnecessary because the spirit, regardless is pure and true and can be trusted to lead us into this higher knowledge. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Do anything you want. Now, which of those two schools do you think enrolled more students? The beat your body down or do anything you want with your body. It'll never reach your soul. And here we are in 2024 in America where people feel at a certain distance removed from their physical behavior because of the life of their mind. That's not what I intended. That's not what I meant. That's not who I, listen for it, that's not who I am. Don't know who did that. We say things like this, I was beside myself. What do you mean? You stood beside yourself and watched yourself do that? What? Our culture has been shaped by Gnostic teaching which John first identified in his old age as he continued following Jesus. What can you gain from understanding 1 John? A few things. First of all, a confidence that faith in Jesus is based on facts. That's really the takeaway this morning. Your faith in Jesus is not hopeful, it's factual. Secondly, you can gain a way to evaluate whether you yourself actually know Jesus. John is going to give some criteria of people who claim to be Christians. Watch what they actually do. Their behavior, their words, their choices will tell you, regardless of what they claim, whether they actually do know Him. John will also give you a way to decide whether spiritual ideas are true or false. And I hope this study, this short study, will be part of big help on your journey. If you take into your life the truth that John gives you about Jesus, it will give you a deepening joy as you go further into the life that Jesus alone can give you. So, let's look now briefly at 1 John chapter 1. Let me explain to you what John tells us about Jesus. I want to warn you on the front side as we begin to read this that John writes in a style that is not characteristic to Americans in 2024. I think one of the reasons is the old fisherman's excited. He's going to build up to something. He's going to repeat himself. He's going to say something interesting and then go in a slightly different direction and then double back and say it again. Then he's going to kind of lean into the main idea of what he wants you to know and then run back with the excitement of a blue-collar worker who suddenly finds himself in touch with the greatest ideas God has ever given people, which is not something he would have expected based on his upbringing. He's going to say it again and again and again. Listen to this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. I want you to study the first two verses. Count, I won't ask because we'll disagree. Count how many times John says, I saw something or I heard something, or I put my hands on something. See how repetitive that is? Listen to it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Notice how repetitive that is? John can't get over it. We saw it, we heard it, we had our hands on it. What are you talking about, John? I'm talking about something that was there from the very beginning. I'm talking to you about life, the life that was with the Father and showed up, was manifest. We put our hands on Him. We saw Him, we heard Him. What sorts of things is John thinking about more than he actually told you about in his gospel? Because at the very end of the gospel, he said Jesus did many other things which are not written in this book. But John watched Jesus turn water into wine and watched him smile as a couple who would have otherwise been mortified and shamed for the rest of their lives saw their big day rescued. John watched the Son of God rest exhausted beside the well where he met the Samaritan woman. John remembers walking away with the rest of the disciples to get food for Jesus and discovering when he returned, that Jesus seemed somehow physically and spiritually refreshed and told John, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. In John chapter 6, John, along with the other disciples, watched one of his fellow disciples bring a kid's sack lunch to Jesus and watched Jesus take that little bit of food into his hands, look up to heaven, pray over it, and then use it to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. In John chapter 11, John saw the face of Jesus cloud over, and his eyes filled with, fill with tears, and Jesus weeping before the tomb of his friend Lazarus before speaking to the dead man and bringing him back to immediate full life. Later in his gospel, John watched Jesus arrested He watched Peter and other disciples, apparently with John himself, at least for a time, run for their lives. But John also remembers going back to the cross and standing beside Jesus' actual mother, Mary, who had birthed birthed the man that was dying 30-some years earlier. And John received the custody and the care of Jesus' mother, for the rest of her life because Jesus, the Son of God, was dying bloodily on a cross right in front of John. John heard him speak of thirst. John heard him cry in death. He wants you, number one, to know this, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God who was born a human being, is fact, not fiction. He's fact. It really happened. He could be seen, he could be heard, his body could be touched. In the very last chapter of his gospel, John tells us with equal amazement that he once watched Jesus prepare breakfast over a charcoal fire that he must have started himself and serve bread and fish to frightened fishermen, including Peter, who had once denied Jesus right before they killed him and ran out into the night to weep bitterly over the whole thing. It really happened. He's real. He's not an idea. He's not a mother mystical teacher that appears for a time, says a few interesting things, which people collect into books and distort and improve and amplify so that nobody really knows what Jesus is actually saying. No, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was born an actual human being, and that is a fact. It's not fiction. This runs all the way through John's writing, including his gospel. I want to show you how closely John's letter corresponds with his gospel, which tells us about the life of Jesus. Read John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 with me, please. John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The exact same kind of opening that his first letter has. Jesus was there in the very beginning. The Word, who is Jesus, is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But then John begins to speak of his own experience in verse 14. Read this with me, please John 1 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, remember here, this very famous verse, which is often adorns Christmas cards, is not a Christmas card from John. He's telling you his real-world experience. The Word who was always there, the life that was always with God, the Word of God who was always with the Father, that same Word became flesh against the Gnostics. And so real was His humanity that He dwelt among us. And so real was His deity that we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And our experience was with Him every day was this, Jesus was filled with grace and truth. Not in opposition, not in balance, but all grace and all truth all the time because Jesus is utterly unique. How factual is the life of Christ? This factual, the people who knew Jesus chose to die rather than deny that they knew Him. John is one of the very few apostles, the only one apparently of the original twelve, who was not murdered for his testimony. If John were standing before you, you would almost certainly, according to church history, see a terribly scarred body. A man who was a physical shell and a wreck of a human being who died apparently after exile of old age, but had the privilege of living a very long life, some 50 years past the resurrection of Jesus, so that you would know that John himself knew him, and you do not personally know him in the flesh. You have not handled his wounds. You have not seen his resurrected body, but John saw him before and after his crucifixion, and he wants you to know the faith that John had in Christ and the faith you have in Christ all these years later is not fictitious. It's factual. What else does John want you to know? Well, go back to 1 John and read with me again. so that you too, in other words, so that you, like we do, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, number two, huge. Jesus not only gives eternal life, Jesus is eternal life, and He gives eternal life. He is life. He is the one who was from the beginning, He is the one, according to verse 2, who is the word of life, the life that was made manifest, the life which was with the Father and then showed up on earth. Sounds a little abstract, but bear with me for a second. This can help you walk with Jesus and make it personal and make it as real as it actually is, not make it personal, but experience it as personal because that's your actual faith. Jesus is not a set of values. He's more than that. Jesus is life. And because he is life, eternal, dependent on no one for his own life, along with Jesus, come truths and come values, but Jesus is more than that. He's not an idea, he's a person. He is that one who was from the beginning. He is the one who is life, who was always with the Father. What does that mean? That means that you shouldn't think of your Christianity as Jesus sitting across a table from you, hearing that you believe in Him, and Jesus kind of pushes eternal life across the table to you and gives you the gift of eternal life as a commodity, as someone may give you a Bible or a jewel. No, Jesus does much more than that. When Jesus gives you eternal life, what he gives you is not a thing. It's not a possession. What Jesus gives you is himself. He is our life, Paul says in Colossians. The way he explained it to his wide-eyed disciples on his way to the cross, after he served them the Last Supper, after they felt his hands wash their dirty feet, In John chapter 13, by the time we get to John chapter 15, Jesus explains the Christian life like this. I am the vine, you are. Do you know the rest of this? You are the branches. Where does the life come from? The vine. Where does it show up? On the branches. The life is the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. All you have to do is abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Here's how John explains it in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What that means is the eternal life that John is speaking of is life with God himself. He is your life. You walk in fellowship not with an idea, not with a creed, not with a set of values. You are in fellowship. You are enjoying life with a person who loves you dearly no matter what suffering and circumstances may tell you. Go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The eternal life that John is speaking of is life with God. In other words, God not only gives the good news, God actually is the good news. And the eternal life that we enjoy is also life with the other people He saves. Notice, this fellowship is not just vertical, That's a very American 2024 version of Christianity. It's just me and Jesus, and Jesus is me, and me are good, and the rest of you can go walk off the pier. No, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are telling you this so that you may have fellowship with us too. That means that the poison churchianity of the South, where people who hate each other in church call each other brother and sister, Hey, brother. Happens in Latin America where I grew up too. Can't remember a guy's name, so you just call him brother. And the relationship's about that deep. No, this life, this fellowship, this partnership, this shared life is for us. And it's not just for me. It's for us together. Here's how that works. If by God's loving adoption, Jesus has died for me and Jesus has died for you, and I've turned from my sin and I've been given the certainty of the life of Jesus now living in me. And you've turned from your sin and you've been given the certainty that Jesus now is life to you. And we're brought together into the family of God. If God is my Father and God is your Father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters, we really are a family. And God is gathering up His family. Now. I know this has gotten a little abstract, a little theological. That's the way John wrote it. This eternal life is also life with other people that, got, that Jesus saves, and John calls this life that Jesus gives fellowship, which in classical Greek, which preceded John's time, was a word they commonly used to describe the love of marriage because there's no closer personal relationship than marriage. Fellowship spoke of a deep personal bond of life not only endured, but life shared with another person. Now, what difference does this make? Practically speaking, this makes all the difference in the world. Let me give you a few earthly so-whats. First of all, since Christ is real, the life Christians show to the world should be real too. If Christ is your life, And by the witness of the apostles and by the witness of Scripture, you have come to personally put your trust in an actual person who is Jesus, who died for your sins, to give you himself. If you're really in him and he's really in you, he should show up. It shouldn't just be the you show anymore. More and more of Jesus should be apparent in the way you live, in the way you treat people, in the way you talk to people, in the way you think about them. Secondly, if the life of Christ cannot be seen in someone who claims to be a Christian, something is wrong. We don't want to be merely demographic Christians. To this day, and that's rapidly changing as people claim no spiritual or religious affiliation at all, but if you ask most Americans still in 2024 if they have any religious affiliation, most people will still say, I am a Christian. And what many of them mean is, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not an atheist. I have a bare acquaintance with the basic claims of Christianity, and that's kind of my culture. That's where most of my values are coming from. Jesus insists that He is and He does something much bigger. He is life. He gives life. So if His life can't be seen, something is wrong. And hear this as we hurdle further apart as a nation, and more disturbingly, further and further apart from each other as Christians. If someone claims to be close to Jesus, but he's always at odds with other Christians, he's wrong. Either they're not Christians and he's the only one, or Christ is not at work in his life to give him fellowship, not only with Christ himself, but with the rest of God's family. A third and final fact is this, look in verse 4. We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. There is joy in proclaiming the life of Jesus to others. As you keep reading the gospel of John, the first letter of John, and I'm going to recommend to you that you read a chapter a day for the duration of this series and read straight through the letter two or three times because nobody reads a letter one paragraph at a time and then picks it up a week later. If the person you love most on earth sent you a handwritten letter, you wouldn't read the greeting and say, well, that's nice. I'm going to go think about that for a while. You'd read it straight through. So, read this straight through, because what's at the heart of John's writing is joy. The old commercial fisherman, now dying of old age with a ruined body, can't get over the fact that the life that was always with the Father walked up to him. And the life of God was visible on the shores of Galilee. And the life of God spoke to John and called him and said, come with me. And John did, and it made all the difference. And that has increased John's joy, and that will increase your joy. Joy, as you tell other people about Jesus, John insists on this, including in his gospel. Last connection to John chapter 1, verse 11. John says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But here's an offer to you. Listen, if you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior and your sins are forgiven, this is the offer made to you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's what's on offer. Real joy, Real life. What is Jesus offering? Jesus is offering eternal life. Jesus is offering genuine community. Jesus is offering joy that gets deeper the longer He lives in within you and the longer you walk with Him. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus gives because He's real. So, my invitation to you if you're not entirely certain that Jesus is your life and has given you His own life, that you would be sure of that today. And that if you have this joy, that you would set yourself on the task of proclaiming it to others. Could you stand with me, please, so we can pray together? Let me just invite you to bow your head to have a moment of personal reflection before we leave. Your life with God, is it an I hope so situation or do you know so? Are you sure that you have eternal life or are you still working on it? If part of your working on it is coming to this church, let me tell you something really clear and really helpful. The work you're doing, whatever it is, including coming here, will do you absolutely no good unless you trust Jesus, who is life and who can give you eternal life. If you'll turn right now in genuine trust in Jesus, agree with him that you have sinned, but agree with him that he can save you. Ask him forgiveness for your sins and ask him instead to give you his eternal life. He will. He's done it for 2,000 years, beginning with men like the old fisherman John. He's done it in every tribe and language and previous life that people had before they came to him. He'll do it for anyone who humbly comes and trusts him. So if you're not certain, be certain now. Paul, I'm quiet. Call out to him and say, Jesus, I believe you. I repent of my sins. Please save me. Give me your life. And he will. you have this life, Christian, set your heart on sharing that joy with others. Jesus, I pray that you would help those who may be in this room who need to trust you this morning. I pray that right now, while I pray a final time in this service, you would give them the grace to turn to you and say, Jesus, I believe you. I'm a sinner, but I want you to be my Savior. Give me your own life. Make me certain. Let me know that I have eternal life. And for those of us, Lord, who have this joy and have this certainty, let us never get tired of it. Let us share John's amazement and proclaim you so that our joy would be deeper and bigger as other people come into your family too. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint says...